turn with me in your Bibles again to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verses 28 through 30. And we know that to them that love God, all things work together for good, even to them that are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also foreordained to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he foreordained, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. We have been studying together an Orthodox Catechism, which is, as you may recall, a 17th century particular Baptist Catechism, which is a revision of the Heidelberg Catechism, one of those Reformed Catechisms of the 16th century, a product of the Reformed churches of that day. And we have come to the place in the catechism, generally, where we have an exposition, really, of the Apostles' Creed. And moving through what it teaches us concerning God, concerning what it is we believe about God and about the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ then, his only begotten Son, and then also the Holy Spirit. We've come to that section of the creed and the catechism, that statement and article concerning the church, that we believe in the existence of and the reality of the Holy and Catholic Church of Christ. This particular question and answer is question and answer 53. And in it, we confess that I, a Christian, believe that the Son of God does, from the beginning to the end of the world, gather, defend, and preserve for himself by his spirit and word out of the whole of mankind a company chosen to everlasting life and agreeing in true faith, and that I am a lively member of that company and so shall remain forever. The Son of God takes to himself a church, a people from across the generations, that is from the beginning of the world until the end of the world. And even if we think in present terms, he takes a people from across the globe. And this company is a company that is chosen to be taken by Christ, a company chosen to be redeemed by Christ unto everlasting life and indeed shall remain as such. Jesus Christ, as we noted several weeks ago from John chapter 14, Jesus Christ as the great shepherd of the sheep who lays down his life for the sheep gathers to himself, defends and preserves for himself one flock. He, has, he is one shepherd who has one flock. And remember there that he's speaking to those who descended physically, naturally from Abraham. They are Jews. And he's telling them that it's not just from among them that he will gather or take, gather, defend, and preserve this flock, 
but even those that are not from among them. In other words, the Jews and Gentiles shall comprise this one flock because Jesus is the one shepherd, the one king and head of this flock. Jesus here teaches us concerning the universal, the Catholic church, which he gathers to himself, which he redeems by laying down his life for them, which he defends from thieves and hirelings, and which he preserves unto the end. To put it in more theological terms, perhaps, we might say that the church, this holy and Catholic church of Christ, is the effect, the fruit of the mission of the Son of God incarnate. One Reformed author commenting on this article of the Creed says that the fourth part of the Creed that is beginning with this statement, that I believe in an holy Catholic church, contains the effect of all that has gone before. For unless we want to say that in vain the Father sent the Son, in vain the Son suffered and rose again, and in vain the Holy Spirit was promised and sent, we must believe the effect of all these things. Namely, that in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Father builds for himself a new people. The Father sends the Son to gather a church. The Son suffers and rises again to gather a church. And the Holy Spirit is promised and sent to gather a church. And this church, because it is the fruit or effect, the working of the triune God, This church is holy, and this church is Catholic. Now, today in particular, this morning, I want to emphasize one particular part of the Catechism's answer regarding the church, one particular aspect or topic related to the Bible's teaching regarding Christ's holy and Catholic church, namely that she is a company chosen to everlasting life. The scriptures teach and we believe that Christ's church, that is his holy, his purified bride and his Catholic or universal body, is a company of people taken out of the whole of mankind and predestined or elected, redeemed, called, justified, and glorified. Indeed, the church is, by God, through Christ, in the Spirit, a company of God's People. To put it somewhat simply, the church, the church across generations and the church across the globe, is the blessed work of the blessed triune God. According to his mercy and grace, according to his eternal love. And through the Son and by the Spirit, God has a company chosen to everlasting life.
And we look today in this connection at Romans chapter 8 and verses 28 through 30. These verses, and especially verses 29 and 30, have been said by our Reformed forebears to form something of a golden chain of salvation. Described as golden because it is precious, as salvation is precious, and as salvation is God's doing, but also a chain because of the unbreakable links that exist between the various blessings or benefits that the apostle here mentions. These things are linked together in such a way that if one is said of us, then all are said of us. Indeed, if God truly has foreordained a people to be conformed to the image of his son, then that people are also called, justified, and yes, glorified. We might say that the apostle traces salvation from the glory of God's own eternal purpose to the glory that he bestows upon his chosen people. And we'll get into this, but a reminder at the outset that that chosen people are chosen and thus then called and justified and glorified, not because of anything in them, but solely on account of the grace, mercy, and love of God. And this golden chain, this precious and unbreakable reality of salvation, the God of glory bringing his people to glory through his son, this chain is also Catholic. That is, it is universally true of the entire company of Christ's church. All those from across the generations and across the globe, all those from the beginning of the world to the end of the world, who are and who do belong to Christ's church, they are foreordained, called, justified, glorified. We might put it this way, that what God does, his work of saving this people through Christ and the Spirit is true and sure. What he begins, he finishes. The church that he chooses is the church that he glorifies. The church is a company chosen to everlasting life. And in that connection, we want to notice several things concerning this company, concerning this church, concerning even how it is spoken of here in this golden chain of salvation. First of all, we need to notice that the church is a present Reality. And the church is marked by present infirmity. The church, this company of God's people, 
is a church presently indwelt by the Spirit, but presently indwelt by the Spirit, not in a state of glory, but in a state of grace. Notice if we back up to verse 26 and get the context here, that Paul speaks of the fact that the Spirit helps our infirmity. He's just been describing the reality of salvation, the blessing of salvation that comes to us by the Spirit dwelling in us. So we are a people who are no longer condemned in Christ. This great grand summary of what he's said up to this point comes in chapter 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to speak of the way in which the Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, will do likewise for us. Because Christ has been raised, we shall be raised. And because Christ was raised by the Spirit, we too shall be raised by the Spirit. This pertains to our future, but at present, the Spirit is already present with us. That is, He already dwells in us. We know the adoption of sons. And this Spirit bears witness to us that we are God's children at present, And if children, verse 17, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified with him. Now we like that glorified part, but the reality is our present is defined by this suffering part. And that's what Paul begins to deal with. Well, wait a minute, what does this suffering look like? He goes on to expand how they're not worthy to be compared to the glory that will come, but they are a present reality. And as such, we're marked by a need for the Spirit's intercession. And yes, the Spirit is the one who in the midst of these sufferings, in the midst of our present infirmity, helps us, intercedes for us. Even when we cannot utter Prayers to God, the Spirit intercedes for us. When we are silent, the Spirit, as it were, speaks. Because the Spirit and the mind of the Spirit is known by God. And the Spirit is the one who searches our hearts even when our mouths cannot speak. And then Paul gives us this comforting word that even in the midst of all of this present suffering and present infirmity, those that love God, to them all things work together for good. And who are these people that love God? And who is it that God works good for? Them that are called according to his purpose. Well, wait a minute. What's this purpose? What's this calling? And Paul takes occasion to answer that question and explain the nature of our calling and explain the nature of God's purpose. even to the extent of reminding us, picking up on the language that he's already used in the letter, and particularly here in chapter 8, to remind us that this purpose is an eternal purpose, an immutable purpose of the eternal and immutable God to bring us into full and final conformity to the Son, Jesus Christ. Here we have a kind of summary conclusion 
a, a, a conclusion to Paul's sustained consideration of the perfection of God's work of salvation. So that even as we come to verses 28 through 29 and consider this golden chain, Paul is uh, taking the, the uh, terse, or here using terse and brief language, picking up and repeating previous threads, previous thoughts, in order to emphasize that even in the midst of our present, we are blessed. Blessed because God, who is full of glory, has purposed to bring us out of sin into grace and unto glory. That is, conformity to the image of his son. And it's important to recognize that this conformity or this this purpose to bring a people to conformity to the image of his son is so that Christ the son might be the firstborn among many brethren. Sometimes when we think of election or predestination, we think of uh, ourselves and forget to remember that predestination and election has in view the whole of God's purpose of salvation, including the mediation of Christ, including the redemption of the church. And so we notice that the, this golden chain of salvation and the church is a present reality. A present reality. But secondly, we want to notice specifically that the church is a predestined church. The church is an elect church. The scriptures teach elsewhere, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, that we are elect in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blemish before him. Even here we have mention made of not just what we might call the origin of predestination in God, God choosing, as it were, God electing, but also the end or the goal of that election to be holy and without blemish, or as Paul puts it here, to be conformed to the image of his son. Paul is speaking about the church then, and he's speaking about those that are called according to God's purpose, and this purpose is more particularly mentioned as a purpose of foreknowledge and predestination, a purpose of election. A purpose of election unto salvation. Those whom God foreknew are those whom he foreordained. Foreknowledge and foreordination or foreknowledge and predestination here are used together to speak of one reality of that eternal and immutable counsel or decree of God concerning 
the salvation of his people. A eternal and immutable decree of God, his counsel. And we must remember that God has no counselors that he consults. He does not even consult future you and future me. Will you believe? Well, then I'll choose you. No, God freely. And God, according to all of his immutable and eternal perfection, according to his mind, foreordains. a number of particular people to the end of conformity to Jesus Christ. And he even foreordains the work of Jesus Christ by which that number of particular people will be conformed to him. All of it then, all of it, the the reality that Christ is the firstborn among many brethren, even the election as it were, of Christ or the Son to be the mediator between God and His elect. To be the one who dies and rises again for their sakes. To act on their behalf, the behalf of His brethren, even this is a matter of God's free, eternal, and immutable mind and purpose. And then, appropriately, that we are to be conformed to the image of this Son, Jesus Christ. To be conformed to the image of the firstborn, that is, the first raised from the dead. Even this is a matter of God's Eternal, immutable mind and will. Now, there are some who would come to a text like this and say, well, this foreknowledge and this predestination, this election unto salvation is an election of those who will believe. But no, as we see from what follows, it is an election unto belief. Unto calling, unto justification, unto glorification. It is an election unto salvation. It is an election based not upon foreseen faith, but an election that is rooted in the mind and the will of God. A mind which is, Paul will say, unsearchable, infinite, incomprehensible. There are those who will say, well, this is a foreknowledge and predestination, an election just of a particular number and not of particular persons, people, individuals. No. Yes, it is true that there is a a number which we cannot comprehend, which no man can comprehend. But we might say it is a named number. 
a particular number of particular persons who, in fact, will be, already are in a certain measure and will be identifiable. Not because they run around with E's or P's on their forehead, as you've probably heard before, predestined or elect, but because they are those who are called and who are justified and who are glorified. When you and I stand with this whole company before God on the last day, when Jesus comes again, and we see the number of glorified saints, those who are perfectly conformed to the image of the Son in body and soul, we will not see a nameless number, but we will see all of the brethren of him who is the firstborn, particular brothers. And this is not intended to cause us distress and say, well, am, do I belong to this number? But Paul writes to bring comfort to those who are presently experiencing suffering in conformity to Christ, infirmity in this present evil age to say to you, dear believer, that you are, yes, being conformed to Christ, and you are being conformed to Christ because you were chosen to that end, and you know that you've been chosen to that end because you have been called out of a state of sin and into a state of grace and union with Jesus Christ and given faith in Jesus Christ, and you've been justified by Christ, and you, he speaks of it as a finished reality here, but we know that it is future for us, right? Glorified. The church is a present reality that is experiencing suffering and infirmity. But if we stop to look Beyond our present circumstances, we will see not only that God is working, but we will see and know that God is working precisely what he purposed to work in order to bring you, dear beleaguered Believer, to that final conformity to Jesus Christ, to that day when you stand beholding Jesus Christ with glorified eyes, glorified body, glorified mind, glorified soul. And so, yes, a number, but a named number. Individual election unto everlasting life of a whole company, a whole big company going all the way back to the days of Adam and Eve when they stood in the garden naked and ashamed. And God clothed them. And all who of subsequent generations believed upon Christ, whether Christ coming or Christ having come, all the way to the end of the world when Jesus does in fact come again. Those who love God, things are working together for good. 
And those who love God are those who have been called according to his purpose. And that purpose is a purpose, an eternal purpose. An electing purpose. A purpose of foreordination to be conformed to the image of the Son. The Son who is the firstborn among many brethren. Now this raises questions. Well, what about those who aren't elect? And Paul gets to that, especially as he deals with the question that was present then. What about unbelieving Israel? And he deals with that in chapters 9 through 11. And even though he speaks there of unbelieving Israel, it's true that we can say, what about those who in this life do not believe? And those things apply to them as well. But remember, Paul is speaking to the church. He's speaking to churches. And he's speaking about those who belong truly to Christ. And he's telling us that the things which we see are not all that there is. God has a purpose, and that purpose is not willy-nilly. It's not random. And that purpose is not dependent upon you. It's dependent upon Him. Because He not only brings you to glory, but He purposed to bring you to glory. And yes, He does so through sufferings. But he does so that Jesus, the firstborn, Jesus, the risen one, might be the head of his body, might be the first among all of his brethren. And these brethren of Christ who are foreordained, who have been foreordained to be brethren with Christ, They are called, and those who are called are justified, and those who are justified are glorified. So the church is a present reality. The church is a predestined body according to the glory of his own perfection. God purposed, God willed that a particular number whom he foreknew, whom he foreordained, would be brought to perfect conformity to the image of his son. And this church, thirdly, we will notice is called this eternal purpose comes to fruition in time. This church is called. This church is justified. Fourthly, fifthly, this church is glorified. And we'll return to these things in due time. But there are two things I want to emphasize as we close this morning. Predestination, election of some from among those who were to be created, that is the whole of mankind, the predestination of some out of the whole of mankind, this election of a company unto everlasting life, that's not a bad word. It's a good word. And it's good because, not only because it's for our good, our saving good, but because the God who foreordains, 
The God who predestines, the God who chooses is good. And wise. Wisdom is the proper arrangement of things. To be wise is to be able to discern, to be able to judge, to be able to arrange things in accord with reality. Well, the God who creates reality is the only wise God who, according to his wisdom, chooses a company to everlasting life. And so, when all of the objections are raised to this biblical teaching, this biblical truth regarding God's free, eternal, and immutable election of some individuals unto everlasting life, when all of the objections to it are raised, they all have to fall at the feet of God. And who God is. His perfection. And the fact that he never acts contrary to his own perfection. All of his works then are works that are good works that are just, works that are merciful, works that are wise, because he is good, he is merciful, he is just, he is wise. And that's precisely why Paul, when he answers these objections, because they come, that's why he comes to the end of this consideration and simply says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past tracing out. There are things that we know because God has made them known. And he's made them known in the unfolding of his eternal purpose in his works. There are those who believe and those who do not believe. There are those who die in unbelief and those who die in faith. What's the difference? Paul goes on to say in that very same context, the end of Romans 11, for who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. Did we give God our faith? And so he said, job well done. You're chosen. No. Are we God's counselors? Oh, we could have done this better. Do we even dare... To broach upon the mind of the Lord? No. Of him and through him and unto him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I would suggest that if you have an issue with the reality of God's free election of some unto everlasting life, that your issue is not with me or with anyone who confesses that truth, but your issue is ultimately with God. And you are wrestling with an issue of authority. And you're saying, my mind knows better. You as a creature are saying to your creator, I can figure this out better than you. No, you can't. No, you can't. God's election, his decree and purpose of election 
is good. And if we had any doubt, remember that it is an election which includes the Son of God to be the firstborn among many brethren. If you don't like election, don't, you can't like the resurrection. And if you don't like election, and you can't then like the resurrection, you can't like Christ. That's a really bad way to put it, but I think you know what I mean. We don't get to pick and choose what we believe. Because then we're just, to kind of paraphrase Augustine, we're just picking ourselves. God says, the eternal, ever-blessed God who dwells in light unapproachable, who is of such a mind and such a wisdom that it is unsearchable to us. And yet he makes these things known. This God chose a company of people, particular persons unto everlasting life. So that his own son, the son of his love, might be the firstborn among many brethren. And for this people, Christ came, lived, died, rose again. And for this people, or this very people, they are called, they are justified, and they are glorified. Brought from sin to grace to glory. All because God was pleased to have mercy. Not obligated to have mercy. Pleased to have mercy. Not obligated to save you. But pleased to save you by the son of his love. Pleased. To make you one of Christ's brothers in resurrection life. Pleased to call you. Pleased to justify you. Pleased to glorify you. Election is good. And election is a good that is known in its effects. Again, we don't walk around with ease on our forehead, but we do believe. There are so many that, that struggle. Perhaps this is you. You think about election and you get lost in trying to comprehend the mind of God. When God has revealed something of that mind in the pages of Scripture to say, don't try to, to search the unsearchable, but search what I've made known. It's right here. Have you been called? Have you been justified? Do you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ? My promise is true. Believe and you shall be saved. And how is that promise true? Well, you can trace it back to my eternal purpose. But you know election by its fruit, by its effects. You don't know it by trying to climb into the mind of God, but you do it by coming to the revelation of God's mind in Holy Scripture, which says to you, dear believer, that if you believe you are in Christ, not because you made it possible to be in Christ, but because God purposed for you to be in Christ and conformed to Christ from grace and to glory. And so the question is, at the end of the day,
do you believe upon the risen Son? Do you believe upon the risen Son? If the answer is yes, despite the present sufferings, despite the present infirmities that you know, despite even that tension that Paul speaks of in chapter 7, that struggle with remaining sin, in spite of all of that, know this. All things are working together for your good. Because you are one who God has called according to his purpose. Called in fulfillment of his eternal purpose. And what purpose is that? A purpose of election. A purpose, a counsel, a decree. To be conformed to Jesus Christ. And you who he chose, he is called. Those whom he has called, he is justified. Those he's justified, he's glorified. It doesn't belong to you because of your faith, but even your faith is a testimony. Weak as it might be, is a testimony to God's great work. Yes, you may time at times doubt your faith, but do not for a second, my friends, doubt God's work or doubt God's word. Even as we come to the table of our Lord, we will see and we will taste reminders of what God has said and what God has purposed from all eternity. For the Jesus who died, whose body was broken, whose blood was shed, rose from the dead as the firstborn among many brethren. And his rising from the dead as the firstborn among many brethren is God's purpose of election being fulfilled. And even now, as we come to the table, that purpose is being fulfilled as you and I, weak in faith, full of infirmity, suffering in this present evil age. As we are here, by the Spirit, conformed to Jesus Christ. Brethren, be comforted then in God's purpose of election. An unbeliever, do not fear whether you are elect or not. But in light of God's purpose of election, believe. Believe upon the Christ whom he purposed to send, whom he did send. And believe upon him crucified and risen and coming again. Let's pray.